Hey everybody, this is Andy Timmons. I'm a guitar player based in McKinney, Texas, just north of Dallas. And uh, very happy to be here on Talking Blues with my friend Mako and uh, looking forward to getting to know you guys. Let me begin uh, by asking you about that four-year-old kid walking around with that red plastic guitar playing <laughs> Stepping Stone. Yeah, you know that bit of my story. I still know it. Dude. Tricky part. Well, that was, yeah, that was, uh, I remember vividly, you know, my, my older brother, I think probably John showed me that, that lick. And so the household, I was born in 63, so that photo that's on the internet would have been taken in 67 or 68. So there's always guitars around the house and my brothers were buying all the sixties, you know, music as it came out starting in 63 with the, you know, late 63, early 64 with the first Beatles singles. <clears throat> and then of course, Stepping Stone is the monkeys, the, the prefab four as they're known. <laughs> and yeah. And so, but it was all in you know, Dave Clark five and kinks and animals, Herman's hermits. That's, that's the music that was uh, just, you know, all in the household. And my brothers also had a couple of acoustic guitars around the house, the old silver tone Sears acoustic guitars that so many families seem to have back in the 60s. And uh, so I guess I must have asked my mother to, at, the, at, the, at the dime store to get me this, this plastic guitar because I just wanted to, you know, I, I love the sound and the look of, of all things rock and roll. And so my brothers being into it only fortified that influence. And so... Yeah, there, there's a picture of me on stage with this country band that would have been playing at this steakhouse that my father had a, <laughs> had a a part ownership in. And it just happened to be one of the first records I had was that guy leading that band was a guy named Chuck Carter, uh, who I got to know again later in life. But I was just, you know, this little kid as a novelty getting on stage with this band. But I vividly remember the waitress after I came off the stage, she, I went over to the bar to get my orange soda and she handed me a quarter. Like I actually got money. Right? So, <laughs> I said, and I've told the story many times. I've I've been paid less for gigs, you know. Uh, so that was a good start, though. But I was just, of course, I I wasn't playing with the band. I was just there for the photo op, I guess. But they they were. I remember the guy over there. There's a guy playing a Les Paul Junior. I remember him trying to show me chords, and you know, well, not quite. He not quite. You well. my, he, yeah, well, I was I was a slow learner initially, but I caught on eventually. But yeah, that's you know. So that, there was definitely come from a very musical household in that way, I suppose. I presume your brothers were big influences on on you musically. Yeah, and still to this day, to be honest, I mean that that's something that kind of went up through our lives. Um, and my my folks divorced when I was really young, so but I'll, I'm the youngest of four, and we're all four years apart. So my my oldest brother would have been twelve the year that I was born in '63. And so again, there's that you know he was the perfect record buying age. So literally from the cradle for me, I was just hearing all that British invasion. But they continue to be influential just because they were, they were my male role models as well. So literally my heroes, you know, in that way. Did anybody else um, pursue music like you did professionally? Well, well, they both, my oldest brother Mark would have played just some basement bands in the, in the six, late 60s. Uh, but my brother John played a bit of drums and they had he had a couple of bands in high school, but nobody went on to pursue it as a profession. My brother John... Uh, went on to own a very famous record store in, in, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky called Ear Ecstasy, and uh, <clears throat> which is kind of an iconic store that, you know, Jack Black and the Foo Fighters all played at over the years. Oh, wow. they, they would have gigs there. One of the, one of the great independent record stores. But nobody, you know, carried on as, as a musician. So I was the one in the family that took it the most serious. But very much, you know, influenced by their passion and their love of music certainly formed my early taste, you know, their, their record collection became my record collection via hand-me-downs. And then as they went on in the late sixties and early seventies, you know, they got into, they were everything Jeff Beck, you know, from the Yardbirds forward, you know, my brother Mark was buying up all those records and, you know, wired and blow by blow in the seventies. And even, even, you know, there would be times where whatever stuff they're listening to now, I'll go, Hey, what are you guys listening to? And usually it'll be something that I'll resonate with because of that influence and through the, the way my ears were kind of shaped by whatever they were into. You know, I'm into a lot of different things myself, but you know, my, my, my oldest brother, Mark, and I have a, a major love for, uh, for Elvis Costello. So his new record, we're both really, really pleased with, but I remember Mark, you know, we're talking about blues. Mark 
you know, was one of the white American kids buying BB King records in the mm-hmm. late '60s. You know, I remember, vividly remember seeing some of those records and hearing some of those records in his record collection. So, so when you heard your brother's records, did yeah. learning how to play the music come easy to you? Eventually, I mean, obviously, it's difficult early on, but uh, it was it would have been my brother John's. Rod Stewart record every picture tells a story that I had it was playing in my bedroom and I and I I knew a couple of chords I hit a D chord and I recognized well that's the same chord as what's on the record I thought why never dawned on me I could I could learn what's on the record if I just apply you know so that kind of started the course of me you know figuring out some of the songs and um one of my older brother's friends show me the minor, you know, the pentatonic blues scale or whatever it might be. And from there, I was just getting into like the seventies raw. I was starting to buy some of my own records at the age of 12 and, uh, you know, kiss, you know, was a big rock group for, especially for kids that age, it was kind of appealed on you know the visual level, but there was this great straight rock and roll and, and Ace Freely was kind of a perfect guy to start learning from. Cause it was just all the classic blues rock stuff that he would have gotten from, Clapton back in page, you know, um, and so that was that was my entry to the the soloistic, you know, voice of the guitar coming from that American rock, you know, which was from the British blues, which was from American blues. It kept bouncing back and forth across the water, I guess. You know? Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I know you started gigging really early, like at the age of thirteen. Yeah, yeah. What were you playing at that point? What kind of music was that? It was all that seventies, exactly what I was talking about. So it would have been, it would have been Rush and Kiss and Foghat and Ted Nugent, James Gang, UFO, you know, REO Speedwagon. You know, I was in a band. My very first gig was my own eighth grade graduation dance, so I would have been thirteen. And the drummer uh, in that in that group actually was was good friends with my my older brother Brian, who was four years older than I. So. Glenn Gore was, you know, four years older than I, and Jimmy Gaines, his, the bass player he was working with, was a couple years older than Glenn. But you know, they heard about Brian's younger son, the younger younger brother that was in the guitar could really play. Like he heard me in there playing with the Nugent Records and Kiss. I said, man, you should you should hear my brother. He's playing, you know. So I got I got the gig, you know, and and we were we were power trio. I don't think any of us even sang. Jimmy might have sang a couple of tunes. And so I think the kids would have rather have heard some disco or whatever. There we were playing power trio rock. And I was so terrified. It was because it was like all the kids I went to school with for eight years. And I'm a shy kid. And it's my first gig, you know, so just just absolutely terrified. But, you know, I, I, I was with that drummer for the next seven years. We had a, a you know, uh, just kind of a moving a moving group of different players. But it became a band called Taylor Bay, which ended up being a a, a large local band in that Southwest uh, Indiana area. Yeah. But it was a great experience because I was, I was gigging from that age on. I was never not in a band from that moment. So I read somewhere at, at a very young age, you realized that maybe making it in the band is not the way to go. Maybe yeah. that's not the right way to, to explain it, but that you, you had an epiphany of sorts that said, mm. I want to be a guitar player and right. I don't necessarily want to be, I don't know, commercial or whatever. Well, yeah, no, I know, I know the quote you're talking about. And I it, really, it was more like, it just seems such like a fantasy land because I, you know, I grew up in Evansville, Indiana. So somewhat of a smallish medium sized Midwest town. And so just, it just, you know, being in a, in a band like that, that would have been on major labels and tour, it just kind of seemed like fantasy land. Like it, I would often say it kind of felt like it would be like winning the lottery to get that kind of opportunity, you know. Even mm-hmm. though that that the band that I mentioned, Taylor Bay, we had we had made it, we had made a, a vinyl LP in the late in the early early eighties, and then did another batch of sessions, which I was kind of the motivated one in the in the group. I was, even though I was the youngest kid in the band, I was sending out tapes to record labels. You know, this the there was the band had a really nice sound and a couple of great singers in the band and some really well recorded stuff. And was starting to get influence. I mean, not influence. Getting feedback from the uh, the record label, saying, "Hey, yeah, keep keep in touch. The band sounds great. You know, let us know what you guys are up to." But by then, you know, I'm in early college and the, and being with a band with some older guys. There were people were getting married and settled down, and it just kind of felt like 
you know, I need to kind of find other things to do and to, to further my playing or in and stuff, or, you know, further along my playing career. But I did even, even before that, that when I recognized that music was in you know, a guitar was going to be my life, I was reading, you know, the guitar mags, a guitar player with Tommy Tedesco being a studio player and reading about Steve Lukather and Larry Carlton being session guys. And that's where I kind of saw myself, well, okay, these guys are great players and they can play, you know, a variety of styles, but they know how to read music. And that's, that's what kind of encouraged, I encouraged myself to find a teacher because even though I was playing professionally and I was a pretty good player at 16, I was, you know, fundamentally doing pretty well and, and, and could play well. But I thought, well, I need to learn how to read music and I need to learn more about different styles of music. So I sought out a local teacher in Evansville named Ron Pritchett, who began me, you know, even though I could play. So it's, we're starting with lesson one, notes on the treble string, you know, just, just so I could read the music, right? right. But he, he he did see that I had I had ability. And, but so he was also a great jazz player. He was into Barney Kessel was his main influence and Joe Pass. And so he started loaning me records with, these great jazz players and writing out changes to, to jazz standards. And I would, I would, I would learn the, the, the single note reading, you know, the kind of the homework, but then I would also learn the changes to jazz standards and he would teach me the voicings of the chords. And so it just kind of sent me down a broader path, you know, of music and just, just, and I just always, anytime I heard guitar in anything, I just wanted to know how to do it. It didn't matter if it was blues or jazz or, country or rocks is man what a cool sound how do you do that you know it's pretty neat that at such a young age that you would have realized that learning to read <laughs> music was important yeah i and again i because i was self-taught you know i didn't have any experience with that but again it was really purely from that yes called it an epiphany of like well these guys know how to read music and they can play any style so you know what can i do to f further that along and i've been hearing about ron as as like the teacher in town but I was a shy kid. It took me, I remember it taking me two weeks to get the courage to even call him. <laughs> was just, I mean, I, you know, whatever that was. And, uh, and then once I got a hold of him and he said, well, I've got a waiting list, but I'll get you in as soon as I can. It took a couple of months. So I was just right before my 16th birthday, I started studying with him. And I was with him until I left Evansville and, uh, when I was 19. So a good, good, very important three years of my musical growth, you know, where he was Really, you know, and I, and I know years later as a teacher myself, when you get the, when you get a young player that really takes to heart what you're showing them and then the, I call it the light bulb and that you see that light bulb on and they're getting what you're showing them. I mean, it's a really special relationship you can, you can, you can have with, you know, between the teacher and student in that the teacher is, is really happy to find somebody that really is working and taking in what they're giving. So, and I'm really appreciative when I have somebody like that, that I feel like I'm really, I'm, I'm really contributing to their growth. It makes you feel great. Cause you want to pass it on. You want to see others have that joy that you have, you know? And so I think he was real happy to have me as a student and, and really took his time with me and, and nurtured whatever, it, whatever it was he saw in me. Well, I presume yeah. when you left Evansville, I, yeah. you went to Miami, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I would have, my first two years of college, I stayed in I stayed in Evansville because the local the local private college, uh, University of Evansville, they offered a classical guitar program, where I knew nothing about classical guitar. But here I was, I was you know, I was just graduating high school. I was I was in a local band that was playing three four nights a week, taking lessons from the jazz guy. I thought, well, I can stay in school. Mom will be happy. You know, I looked at a couple other colleges, but just I I you know, just felt nice to be able to stay in Evansville, stay in my band. Knew nothing about classical guitar, but I thought, well, I'll go to the library and start checking out Julian Bream and Segovia records. And, uh, you know, just see, see what I could learn. And in my audition, I, I played mood for a day by Steve Howe, which is not classical <laughs> guitar, but it was on a nylon string, but I auditioned on a solid body electric guitar. Uh, wow. cause I didn't, I didn't own a nylon string guitar, but they saw, I guess that I could play and they let me in the program. So that teacher, uh, a wonderful uh, guitarist from uh, Milan, Italy, Renato, Renato Buturi, once again, I saw my potential. And even though I was, you know, a neophyte when it came to classical music, took me under his wing and I started, you know, really being exposed to that, that, uh, that body of work and, and just classical music in general, which I hadn't, hadn't heard any growing up, really. So when you were 16 
and you decide that you want to maybe become a studio musician, that yeah. it was important for you to learn how to read notes. Hmm. I mean, at that point, you knew this is what you were going to do? Yeah, there was there was no doubt, mainly because I had no interest in anything else. I was just... <laughs> I was so wrapped up in it, and and I was very fortunate that my mom, who raised me, always encouraged and never discouraged me. She just her mantra was like, "Whatever it is you want to do with your life, just go for it a thousand percent." And so, you know, for a kid with a beer can collection, which was a popular hobby back in the day, and I had kiss pictures on all four walls and part of the ceiling, my poor mother, you know, like, what is this? What is this kid into? But, you know, she raised me right. She just instilled a, a, a good work work ethic and did the best she could working and raising us. And uh, But I was very fortunate that she encouraged me. And, you know, when it came time to go to college, helped me with getting loans and all the, you know, applying for whatever grants and scholarships. And then, you know, in transferring to Miami, which is decidedly kind of a rich kid's school, I, I paid back student loans for years because I was a poor kid from Indiana. But Got accepted, uh, you know, the program. Uh, I, I couldn't afford to go down to audition in person. I sent a cassette tape with like a, a version of Misty and a, and a Santana <laughs> groove and, you know, just whatever I could put together on a cassette tape. And got, I was very fortunate to get in because it was a very high level of uh, player that was there when I was there. And just, just so inspiring, you know, on all levels. So what did you hope to get out of school was it just exposing yourself to as much music as possible did you have a goal in mind as to what you would hope to achieve after you got out that's a great question and i the honest answer is i I don't think i had a clear idea i just knew that i had to keep pursuing to the best of my abilities just the 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 art of of music and the art of playing guitar i just kind of had a blind faith that i if i work hard enough at this i'll be okay you know what I mean? And that's kind yeah. of an interesting way to, to go through life. But it's, it's, I think it's maybe easier when you're younger like that because you just don't really know what's going to happen, you know, on any day. But always having the opportunity to, to, A, be in a band all the time. When I got to Miami, I ended up in a cover band playing six nights a week. And it was complete immersion. And you know, I was around some of the greatest players I'd ever heard, you know, the other students and, and the faculty at University of Miami. We'd be learning all kinds of stuff and transcribing, you know, Charlie Parker, Chet Baker, Schofield, whoever. And then I'd be out on the gig applying it all on borderline by Madonna. You know, this is like, <laughs> this is like the best possible, you know, path for a young person to be on where it's all this education, but then immediate application of those ideas. And you'd be surprised how Parker works over Madonna, you know, if, if you got some room to blow at the end, but anyway, so, it was uh, it was just kind of idealistic, but I didn't know where it was leading. But I saw other you know people getting gigs or getting high, you know, work, playing on a cruise ship. Or one guy got a gig with Bob James. I was like, oh my god, that's the biggest gig I've ever heard of. You know, this is incredible. Um, so I ended up meeting uh, a bass player named Steve Bailey, who's very well known. I think he's one of the. I mean, he might, he's the head of the bass department at Berkeley now. Yeah. He was in, he had been playing with Dizzy Gillespie and Paquito de Rivera, but he was also a great electric player as well as upright. And he was finishing his undergrad at UM, and he had a drummer that he'd gone to North Texas with in Denton named Ray Brinker, who was out gigging with Maynard Ferguson. But Ray was leaving Maynard's band and wanted to form a rock band. And so, you know, asked Steve if he would join the band. Steve said, yeah. And, and Ray goes, hey, we need a, who's the, who's the rock guitar player at Miami? And I, I was the only rock guitar player. There was a lot of great jazz and fusion, but I was definitely the rock guy. And we were all learning from each other. So I met Steve and Ray and we played and then we ended up moving to Denton where they had gone to school, which is another famous jazz school, North Texas State University. Though I never went to school there, I had the benefit of living, living in Denton because it was such a great, kind of a hippie feeling town. And it was just so many great players, you know? So I got that gig and that led to uh, me forming my own trio, the Andy Timmons band. And that, that cassette tape is what got circulated. It was kind of at, at when, you know, virtuosic rock guitar was really in vogue because Satriani was having success with serving with the aliens, Steve Vai, Ingve, you know, and, and guys like that. And, and that's, you know, really where I wanted to go. But then the, this, the danger, danger gig uh, came along. And that was um, even though I'd gone through all this other stuff, thinking making in a rock band was going to be impossible. Here comes this rock band, you know, and that's what I ended up doing. It was, it was a full circle kind of moment. 
I find that interesting because because yeah. of you thinking, well, it's like winning the lottery, and then yeah, all of a sudden yeah. you kind of won the lottery. But before you <laughs> won the lottery, right? You auditioned for Bad English. Yes, and you also auditioned for Tower of Power. Yes, you've done your homework, man. This, well, yeah, sometimes I skirt those things because they are—they're a, definitely a part of my path, but not many people know about it. So I bring it up occasionally. But this is this is very cool that you did because it's—it's it's quite a crossroads I found myself in. Well, I can add because all this happened at the same time. Um, it did. I find it interesting that you know you went to school, you, you did your rock. Yeah, <laughs> you learned from Nugent and from Frey. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then yeah. you also. Did your classical music, and then you got into more jazz. Yeah. At this point, do you know who Andy Timmons is as a player? Do you have an idea of what what your sound is and what your music is? That's that's not even something I even thought about. You know what I mean? It, it's something that I think happened just kind of organically through all these different things. You know that I got into. You know, I always bring up David Bowie because he has a wonderful way of putting it when he talked about. You know, he he would he would not say he was an innovator. He's called himself a collector, right. and of course, all of our heroes, they can they can talk about their heroes. And if you look at if you look at Stevie Ray, he'll talk about, you know, Hendrix and all the Kings, Albert and Freddie and BB. And so for me, it was it was yeah, it was the seventies and the Beatles and and but all this all all this other music, somehow was I was I was becoming me, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you at that time what that was i'm still figuring it out you know I, th I think it took me to be in my 50s to where i started to be comfortable being me interesting you know and i say that sincerely but the uh but going back to the kind of the crossroads thing it was yeah i had i had um gotten my tape to buddy blaze who was artist artist relations guy for kramer guitars he had heard about me through a friend of his here in texas and because bad english was looking for a guitar player so i initially did audition for them got the gig strangely enough but then neil sean came in at the end of my first week who had who'd done the demos de declined the gig because we had, he'd had a solo record that was coming out on columbia and that was going to be his focus but then for whatever reason he changed his mind and so clearly you know half a journey is 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 uh you know who's this unknown kid from uh from texas the uh john way used to call me the waco kid even though <laughs> Wait, has the Waco kid? He still whenever I see John Wade, he still calls me the Waco kid. But right at that time, you know that that had fallen through. Uh, Steve Grove is a friend of mine, a tenor player that had gone to Miami and was in. He was in Tower of Power, and he happened to call me and say, "Hey, we're coming to town, and our guitar player is leaving. Can you come sit in?" You know, yeah, of course. And it went great, and they offered me for me to come out and and maybe join the band. Right, right when the tape had got into Danger Danger's hands, and they were signed and they were ready to go, they just needed a guitar player to, to, to do the gig. And so it was interesting because, you know, the the more muso kind of gig would have been more naturally what was in my heart. I'd have been happy if Miles Davis called. I would like to have been the next the next Mike Stern, you know, even though I, I probably not that level. But I'm just, you know, I I the my options were were many as far as what I would have liked to have done. The danger, danger thing was uh, was was a struggle for me to decide, but I think that it was I think that it was the allure of the major label and you know the the MTV and tours and and all that. So it and it did and it and it was all that. It was kind of this unrealizable childhood dream that actually did come true. But at the end of the day, as much as I thought that would be the holy grail of what what I thought a career in music would be. It almost was the antithesis because it got very far removed from why I love to play my instrument and the type of music that I love to play with my instrument. It started with rock and I was having a good time doing it. But yeah, I was, you know, I was practicing every day like I was back in school and, and writing what became my first instrumental record. So I learned a lot about myself in that time. Fortunately, I was young enough and old enough. I had young enough where I had a great time because we toured and had all these experiences and, but old enough to where I didn't, I didn't do anything stupid <laughs> that I, that I remember anyway. And, uh, but, but it also, it, 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 it did help me kind of figure out who I was at least to the next, at least to the next level, it, what I wanted and what I didn't want. And so it was, it was clearly not the major label or money or fame. 
that none of that was important to me. And that became real obvious when it just got down to making the music that I want to make and owning and owning that music. <laughs> Did you feel like, yeah. I mean, they're a very catchy band, very glitzy. Um, yeah, no, it was yeah, glam hair hair glam rock hair 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 band whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. As talented as you are with with the education, musical education, mm. did it seem below you? And I don't mean to minimize the no. music because, well, because it, it, you know you sold a lot of a lot of records and you had big was, fans and yeah. And, and again, I, and I and I tread a, a delicate line here because certainly after my when the band kind of fell apart when it did in 92 93 there was a period of time where i kind of felt embarrassed by it meaning mm. that i i so wanted to establish myself as myself as a quote unquote you know a, a serious musician and that music you know was pretty much straight ahead and some of the lyrics were very sexual in nature you know and that's that's the stuff where i kind of was like you know i'm not writing the lyrics here folks you know <laughs> But they were they were they were catchy to us for what it was, and and what I always had to remember, and what I really know more now than ever is that, you know, like Kiss was for me when I was thirteen. That music, you know, that band and that genre was for other people that were twelve <laughs> and thirteen while we were doing it. So it's important to them because when you're that age, that music that you you take in is a part of you for the rest of your life in a way that you can hear something today and it might be great, and it might be cool, but it's not going to be with you like that music was at that time in, in a life when life is changing, man, your body's changing all kinds of crazy stuff. I, I still have this huge bag of fan mail that I got from primarily a lot of young girls back in that late eighties. Yeah. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of love letter kind of things. Right. But a lot of them were like, man, you know, my family life is really effed up. And if it wasn't for this song or this music, you know, whatever, whatever it was, they were, you know, resonating with it's, it was so important to them. And I, and I respect it and I have such appreciation for that, but the, the musician, you know, part of me. Yeah. I mean, it was, I'm a rock, I'm a rock guitar player from the foundation because of what I learned from all the seventies rock guys. So I would never, I would never say beneath. It's just a different, it's, it's a certain segment of my abilities, right. but believe me, I'd stretch out on solos at the end of tunes, you know, where we're touring or whatever. And, and I'm bopping out and I'm, you know, I'm Pat Martino. In my mind, I'm Pat Martino. And, you know, just with hair, with hair and, a, and, a, and a heavy guitar sound. You know? And you got so, the tour with Kiss. I mean, I mean, talk about, yeah, because that, that Kiss was my first concert in 76. Uh, Robert Stadium, Evansville, Indiana, on the Destroyer tour. And again, I'm in the, I'm in the nosebleeds going, this is what I want to do. But it just never dawned on me. So if that was 76, 1990, what is that? Fourteen years later, there I am, opening up every night and talking to Gene and Paul. Again, fantasy land, but uh, Danger Danger provided some really great experiences. I love the guys in the band dearly. We're, there's a lot of a lot of brotherhood, a lot of love there. As much you know craziness as a band goes through, especially when you're even at the level of fame we were at, which was just kind of medium. This man, that's a lot going on when it comes down to. That, you know, the travel and press and money and uh, it gets it gets complicated real fast. So the, being associated with a major label, yeah. At one point you said that that would be a dream. That would be a lottery, winning yeah. a lottery. But yeah. once you were in there and you see the realities of what that means, and I presume that means there's a lot of money backing you up and spent on the band which also means that you're also kind of in debt quite a bit money you're not ever gonna see yeah, yeah. exactly exactly right but is is, is that an, an eye-opening situation for you like whatever you had as a dream to say wow we need to be um signed to a major label sure. to actually experience that and to go through and and have some mm -hmm. success with the band yeah was it surprising to you what the reality was yeah, very much so, and it was. I was just a na naive kid from uh, from Indiana, and not that I had any unrealistic expectations of like this is going to be a, a bazillion dollars and it's going to be easy. I, I didn't think that, but it became clearer and clearer that you know the musician and the artist is just the lowest on the totem pole. You know, it's it's just a huge corporate business, and it's run that way. So. It's easy, it's easy to get your priority, you know, your your ideals kind of hurt and your feelings hurt a little bit when it's like, okay, just because I'm a good person doesn't mean I'm going to be treated fairly, right? Mm 
Um, and that's okay. That's just part of the learning process. But when it, when it, when it, when the, the real defining thing for me was we made a third record for Epic called Cockroach. And it was, it was really at the tail end of when MTV was playing bands like that. And we had, you know, Pearl Jam and, and Seattle and rap, all great, all great stuff, you mm-hmm. know, that was really becoming the focus. And so uh, the band just, I mean, the, uh, the label just decided they, even after jumping up and down, like you guys have made the greatest record and being all about it. Then all of a sudden, you know, well, we're not going to put it out. And so the band kind of dissolved at least at that current time. And then, but the, the, the label made it impossible for the band to get the rights to the record. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why would you ever work so hard and put your heart and soul into something that doesn't belong to you? So from there on, my career has totally been based on, me just wanting to make the music I want to make, but I'm going to own it. You know, I'm not going to, of course the, the, the industry is very different now, but back then you, most artists really did need a major label to, to get it out there on any large scale. We have, now we have the internet and, and so many people are, are, are just putting their own product out and they can do just fine doing it. There were a few people doing it back, back then from George Thorogood, maybe Andy DeFranco, some early, you know, independent artists that did very well on their own, but it, it's hard. It was harder without the machinations of the major label. If we go back mm. to that time, that period of your life where you were auditioning and getting these different opportunities, yeah, with Tower Power, with Bad English, yeah. with Danger Danger. Tell me what it is about you that um, that these opportunities were afforded to you, and that you almost. You know, you could have had any of those gigs or you had any of those gigs. Yeah. I, you know, it, a, a quote comes to mind. Uh, there was a Kramer guitar rep named Don Ellis. Now, when I first joined Danger Danger, he and I would travel around when the band wasn't touring and do guitar clinics for Kramer. And uh, I think he did. We were just driving one day and asked me, how did you get the gig in Danger Danger? And I just said, well, I, I, I guess I just got lucky. And, but, but he, but he, but he, he got, he, he shot back and he said, no, you, you didn't get lucky. You worked your ass off for years. And when you had the opportunity, you were ready. And I thought I will change my answer now, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I instantly recognized he was, I was being humble and just like, oh, I don't know, I guess I got lucky. And there might've been, yeah, there's fortune that comes into play and in who you meet and who, you know, might be able to help you in some way that you've crossed paths with. But the bottom line was, is that he was right. I, I'd worked and still do to this day. I, I, I work hard to try to, you know, keep improving as a player and, and whatever skills I'd honed as, as a human being, just getting along in the world and, and with the way you deal with people. Um, but he was right. You know, I, yeah, these opportunities came, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to fall through or will be, you know, wanted after that audition. Right. So, there was some good fortune involved, certainly, but it was it was really the foundation of, of having worked so hard on something, but it never felt like work, and I didn't and I didn't realize, you know, how seriously I was, you know, cultivating these 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 abilities while they were happening. It was just my nature, you know. I was driven for whatever reason to do it. There was nobody telling me, "Hey, kid, you better you know better practice." You know, I couldn't wait to do it. It was just. I had no other uh, no other passion in my life quite like that. So, so when you when you were with Danger Danger and you were still mm. practicing like crazy, yeah. At that point, do you know, based on the experiences you had with that band, based on the yeah. business of music, did you know mm. what were you getting closer to defining who you were? Yeah, I I might have been. I think I think by the time I had gone through that. And then with all my collective experiences that I'd had before that, leading up to my first solo CD, which was called Ear Ecstasy. Um, yeah, I, th- I think at that point I was starting to arrive, though I was still, you know, there's a few tracks on there that are very Satriani-like, you know, and there's some Hendrix, you know, influence stuff on there. Um, but I, d- I do remember coming home one one. Uh, break from school when I was in Miami. So this might've been 83, 84. And I'm sitting playing with a friend of mine that had kind of been growing up with me and seeing me start to excel and and go forward with my career. And we're playing together one day and he goes, I wish you, I wish you could hear you. (laughs) And it was a cool, it was an interesting thing to say, but I knew what he meant. Like sometimes you're so 
inside of it, you, you don't, you can't see yourself as other people see you, right? Or, or recognize the things that are maybe starting to be, become some of your signature, you know, that somebody else might pick up on and go, oh yeah, that's, that's you. Or that I recognize that because, you know, I hear that in your playing. I was, I was too close to it. I wasn't, I wasn't hearing it. But again, I think, I think just by the general uh, constant pursuit, I know, I think, I think sometimes about a guy like Ingve or Eddie Van Halen that just seemed to be so fully formed pretty early on, obviously with a huge amount of work. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that it, it took me longer to get to a place where maybe I have an identifiable voice now at the age of 58. Um, because I had so many different things I was drawing from and I'm still a fan, you know, and maybe, maybe to a benefit, maybe to a detriment that I just, you know, I just, I still revere and admire so many artists, you know, now some younger than me it used to be, I used to, I used to have, a, I used to have a problem with, oh yeah, he's really young. Yeah, I don't like him. I don't like him as much, but you know, like I used to talk about Derek Trucks and Eric Gales being Eric Gales being my favorite favorite players under fifty. You know, is there an important delineation? I've always been the you know I've always been the kid, and all my heroes were the older guys. But now I got plenty of heroes that are younger, and it's and it's and it's cool to get to a place where you're comfortable with that. You know what I mean? There's just so many up and coming players that are have ridiculous facility. You know? Okay, so I'm curious about being an instrumental guitar player. Okay. Because I know you, you can sing. I know that there are definitely singing on your albums. Yeah. On some stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. But your focus is mainly instrumental music. Right. So is it because of Satriani's success that you think this is a possibility? Like, what's in, the mindset in, in going in and becoming an instrumental guitarist? It was a big thing. Surfing with the Alien was... If you were a guitar player, you know, in your teens or late teens or early twenties, when that record came out, you could not want to do that. <laughs> you know, it was just, but Joe, what, the reason why Joe had so much success was that not only could he, you know, he had Van Halen and Billy Gibbons kind of, you know, kind of vocabulary, but obviously beyond that as well, he had his own thing, but he wrote cool tunes, you know, it's like, like we weren't missing the singer so much. This is, this can really, this can, yeah, it's going to be, a lot of guitar players are going to dig it, but, you know, it also crossed over to mainstream because there was cool melodies and good energy and good sound. So, oh, definitely. That's one of the fondest periods of my life is putting that on my Sony cassette Walkman, you know, and walking around Denton going, man, this is what I want to do. You know, it was just that, it was just that idea that, yeah, this, this can be done and not just, just play guitar. And what a cool place to, to, what a cool place to even, even if you're just fantasizing about or envisioning it, envisioning it. But yeah, it's like, yeah, we love this instrument so much and the potential that it has for expression. Yeah. We don't have to wait for the solo. We are the solo, the whole, the whole damn song, you know, I (laughs) mean, it's in a very selfish way, but it's, it's, it's so much fun, you know. But you're more than just solo. It's it's there's melody and and there's so much. Yeah. Your playing yeah. has so much melody to it, or it's so Thank melodic. Um, and I I would imagine if yeah. it was just just shredding, then it wouldn't be as interesting. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing. From then, that's what Joe brought along in 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 his own way. Of course, is that there were there were cool tunes, and for and for me, I'm a fan of you know, the the quote unquote shred style of guitar playing. But it's not gonna. I'm not gonna listen to it for lengthy periods of time. I'm more drawn to great melody, whether it comes from the guitar or not. I'm not specific to. Oh, it's got to be guitar music, you know. I love. I love great piano music. I'm a big. This last couple of years, Chopin has been my main composer. I've been just kind of obsessed with. Um, so yeah, I I I I do get that from the people that get to know my music. They they generally come back with that kind of comment about the melody whether it's the actual composition itself or even in even in the solo sections if there are solos in the song yeah there, there's hopefully not just this platform for demonstration of ability but it's an expression of music and i think that's very different than saying it's a solo right you know that a solo can be an opportunity to to be showy and and sometimes it, the song benefits from that right uh so yeah, I, I I like a good balance. Hopefully, is is the goal, and just trying to be musical. So when you work with songs with lyrics, mm. 
Is your approach to writing or to playing quite different than to instrumental tracks? It can be depending. Yeah, because if if I'm not the singer via the guitar, then I have to find, you know, what's going to what's going to support that that lyric and that and that vocal in the best possible way. So but that's easy for me only because that, that the majority of my playing experience, though I've had a lot of experience in instrumental music, of course, but just the years of playing in bands, you know, be it Danger Danger or just cover bands or I worked with Olivia Newton-John for 15 years. You know, there's, I, it's, and it's, it's, it's just how I approach any, any, any piece of music at any point in time. It's like, what is going to serve the song the best? You know, what's going to, and it might not be playing at all. It might just be using my volume knob to good effect, you know, just recognizing everything that's happening and just trying to make sure that if, if I'm going to do something that it's going to, be something that's beneficial and not detrimental, right? How did you get the Olivia Newton-John gig? That was oddly enough through Simon Phillips. I was, oh. I've been playing uh, with Simon uh, back in the '90s. We started doing some touring together in '97, and uh, yeah, he was he was still in Toto, but when he wasn't doing stuff with Toto, uh, I ended up doing a couple of records and some, a lot of tours with him, especially over in Europe. And this this goes to the late '90s, and I got a a message on my phone from Simon saying that Olivia Newton-John was looking for a guitar player. Well, Olivia's management was uh, Fitzgerald Hartley, which managed Toto from day one. And so they Olivia had retired in the early nineties, um, had breast cancer and decided she was going to stay home and take care of her daughter. And, but then started doing a couple of gigs in Australia and decided she wanted to do a tour in the States. Uh, and an Australian band was coming over. The, the John Farnham backing band was going to yeah. back her up. She was going to do a tour. And, but Brett Gar said one of the guitar players couldn't make it. He had some previous commitment. So word of mouth through management. Hey, who knows a guitar player? Toto, guys, you know. Well, I know Andy. He's a good player, you know. So Simon, you know, just kind of recommended me. And I, I agreed to do the gig. And it was like two months of tour dates in the States. And it went so well. And, and she and I got on so well. And the management saw how hard I'd worked to really do the gig the best I could. They made me the music director and formed a U.S.-based group. And so it became, you know, 15 years of a larger part of my income. And it was, and she was perfect to work with because she didn't do that much. It'd be like a month here, a couple of weeks here, just kind of sprinkled out through the year. So I still had time to do Simon's thing and had time for my own thing. Um, and one of my fondest musical relationships I've ever had, she's a dear friend and just remarkable musician. Her, her pitch and her time are incredible. You know, she's now, she's retired now. She, She's not likely to get out and tour anymore, but we're still still great friends and uh, very fond of our time together. What, what did you learn from that time? I just learned about integrity and grace. Not that I didn't have experience with it before that, but I saw how she handled her life and her and the music, you know, um, all with great respect and, and grace. It was really incredible. She went through, I mean, I saw her go through some some serious ups and downs in her life mm -hmm. and uh, just really learned from her in, in that way. Just the remarkable energy she had and has, you know, is, is pretty, pretty incredible. And the, the body of work, too, it was was very, uh, was very fun to play. A lot of her tunes were written by a guitar player named John Ferrer. He's a great, great guy, great guitar player. And uh, so there's lots of interesting parts to play. And it, for me, it wasn't about what can I do to, you know, show off Andy Timmons here. I'm there to help Olivia sound as great as she can sound. But that's why I was there for 15 years, you know, because I had that respect for her and the music and the band that we had put together had the similar mindset that was so important, you know. And so she 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 would have a great time because she had this great loving support group with her. And we all uh, just wanted to lift her up the best we can. That little kid who said, I want to be Steve Lukather and go into the studio. Yeah, you were able to achieve that in Dallas for a while, right? Yeah, I did, and still do a little bit, but the I mean the the scene has changed dramatically. But yeah, in the late '80s, before I moved to New York for Danger Danger, I was doing quite a bit of studio work, and then when I moved back after Danger Danger '93, continued to do you know quite a bit of jingle work and some record stuff. Um, and that's I, I really enjoy that. It's it's an odd, it's a different thing, you know, especially the 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 TV and radio jingle thing where it's 60 seconds or 90 seconds, whatever it might be. And it might be, Hey, you got to sound like this guy or that, you know, be Steve Cropper here or be, you know, <laughs> Brian Setzer. I love that. I absolutely love that challenge of 
getting into the getting into the composer's headset like what are they what are they wanting what are they trying to because i don't have to I don't, I don't always have to be me i can't sometimes they want me which is nice but sometimes it's it's kind of being a, a chameleon and just again just doing what's going to be best for this quirky piece of music whatever it might be you know tell me about your new album ah well this this is a really fun record for me just because it was a little bit off the beaten path i uh this is great uh, guitar player I'd gotten to know named Josh Smith, who uh, I think is most known on the blues scene. But I, so I started seeing him on on YouTube. He just started coming into my feed and sort of watching this guy and listening to this guy play. And I just loved what I was hearing because it was obviously steeped in blues, but you could hear the jazz and I could hear the Danny Gatton. And there was just a, a lovely hybrid of styles that I really love. And I don't know how I got Josh's number, but I somehow got in touch with him just to say, hey, man, I freaking love what you're doing. You sound great. You know, just it's just nice to be able to reach out sometimes and tell somebody that. And uh, we really hit it off. And he, he was aware of my music and like my stuff. And and we so we were just becoming friends. He said, hey, man, I just finished putting my studio together out in L.A. You should come out and record. And, you know, over, over the course of your career, you meet so many people and you'll, you know, you'll say, hey, let's get together. And you know, nine times out of 10, it never happens just because people are busy. But the NAM show was coming up, the January NAM that's in Anaheim was approaching uh, maybe a few months down the road. And, and I said, yeah, well, I, I'll be out there in January. He said, yeah, come out three days early. We'll... So the deal was, is that he was inviting me to come play, but I said, look, you know, let's both write tunes, but I want, I want I'll be the artist. I want you to produce and you put the band together. Cause I, every time I saw him, with any of the groups he was playing with, the players were always just killing. Everything had a great feel. I just liked where he was sitting musically. And I thought, I want you to steer this. You know, you pick the players. I'm just going to come out and play. We'll put the tunes together. We'll arrange it. And that's exactly how it happened. He picked, it was largely his main circle of players. It was Lamar Carter on drums and Travis Carlton on bass and uh, Darren Johnson on keyboards. And from note one, we just got along great, you know. And so it was a really a, a fun thing just because it was going to be, it was going to have a different feel than Andy, Andy Timmons band. Not, I mean, I still, of course I still love, love working with my own band. And, uh, but you know, every time you work with a different set of players, it's going to bring different parts of your personality out. It's like when you pick up a different guitar, you know, it's going to encourage certain things. So there's a lot of the record. that's just a lot like the first kind of single quote unquote, we put out a couple of weeks ago, it's called EWF, which is kind of a, a funky homage to Al McKay and Earth, Wind and & Fire. Oh, and, okay. I, did, I didn't know what it was referring to, the yeah, EWF. Yeah, the EWF thing, it's uh, it's very much... Oh, God, what's the name of the song? Uh, it's that, you know, this, that... Well, this, my, my, my tune goes like this. Is, it's this kind of funky swinging thing. But it was it was main, it meant to sound like Shining Star. I was always yeah, a big yeah. fan, big fan of that song, and I never knew what that part was because it was obviously a couple different guitars. So that's me just kind of imitating the feel. But just a couple of weeks ago, I found, I found a, a clip of Al McKay. He he done an instructional video in the '80s, you know, and he said it's two parts and in one part. So it's those two parts just overdubbed. And so that's, I'm not trying to actually play the tune, but it's just, I'm, I was just kind of coming up with a groove that felt like that. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so, so that's a very thinly veiled reference to uh, Earth, Wind and Fire and very much an Al McKay love it, loving uh, tribute, man. I just love the feel of it. And that, and that was a, a fun track to put out first because it's funky, which is a little different than my normal rock and roll thing. Uh, though I've played a lot of that style just over my lifetime, um, but it, and it's a it's a completely live track. That's all. Wow. All the solos and everything was just live. All of us playing together. I know. I heard it yesterday on Spotify. So it's a great okay. tune, oh. and I, oh, I was lucky you. enough to um, get a copy of the album. So I've heard all of it. And it's oh, it's oh, fantastic. Thank you, man. Thank you. Um, tell me about yeah. your confidence as a player, mm. um, because uh, you know the the fact that you had these opportunities offered to you must give you confidence but tell me about your Ooh. personal confidence and and 
Is it something a, you, you have greatly of, or is it something you struggle with? Or that's a great. It's a great topic, and I and I'll I'll be as honest <laughs> as you want me to be. Basically, um, I can't I can't say I'm overly confident. I would I would err on the opposite side of that, where you know even in some of these greatest moments, you know I might just be terrified. <laughs> you know, part of there, there's there's an inherent insecurity that I've always had that that I don't know is a bad thing, if that makes any sense. I, no, it I makes think a lot if, of sense. If I thought that I was just the greatest freaking player ever, I I wouldn't play the same way. You know what I mean? I think there's there's just a real humanity to what I do in that I'm honest. You know, I know I'm not the world's greatest player. I believe enough in myself to think that I do have things to offer on the right day. It doesn't happen every time, but the intent is there for it. To, I want it to be the greatest thing you ever heard. I mean, I think any, any artist, any writer, any improviser, we're trying our best to, to rise to the, the level of what we really love. You know, for me, I might, I might have Stevie Ray or Eric Johnson or Albert King or Hendrix or whoever, or Lugather is a big influence on me. Any of these guys that I've loved so much, I might, have them in my head when I'm trying to achieve what I'm achieving in my own voice, of course. But I never know if I'm going to get there. I don't have that kind of confidence. I I, I have enough humility to know that it's I have potential. You know, I I know I know it can be really good. And uh, the harder I work at it, the more consistent it can be. You know that that's that's one of the things that I I really got back into a more steady practicing. There was a time in my life where, you know, with life and career, you once you're way out of school and you're just taking care of all the things in life you got to take care of, you know, if you're not making genuine practice a part of your regular regimen, you know, that that kind of go it kind of went away from me. Even though I was I was playing a lot, I was always if I picked up a guitar, it'd be more like writing or or just soloing around. But I I recognized at a certain point in my life that I'd gotten away from being that student. And once I I got back into that practice. Boy, man, my life got happier because I, you know, even though I was working, I got back into working on jazz and I was really not sounding very good where at one point I might've been a better jazz player and I started working on it. It was hard to hear myself suck like that, knowing that at one point maybe I had it, I had it more together. And so, but just the, just the dedication and having just made my mind up that simple distinction of I'm going to do this. And it took months, but I started recognizing the improvement, little bits. And but I also started recognizing the difference in my overall well-being. And I just mean on a very spiritual, personal level, that I was happier because, you know, I was sounding better. But through that I knew I knew whatever gift I'd been given, I knew I was honoring that on a on a more dedicated level. Not just doing enough to get by for gigs and keeping things going, which I was doing. It wasn't that I was I wasn't playing that poorly. It was just I wasn't working as hard as I had once worked when I was in college, and re- recognizing that is a very happy time in my life. Like I mentioned, you know, being in school all day, being surrounded by great players. If I wasn't on the gig or in school, I was with, hey man, what are you doing? Let's go sit and play some standards, right? So I found a, a local buddy of mine here in the, in the town where I live, and we started getting together a couple times a week just to play standards and just to kind of get back to that perpetual you know student kind of mindset and that's that's i've found that's the key for my i know we're talking about confidence here but also happiness you know that mm-hmm. just i feel like okay at least I'm, i may not be the greatest i can be today but boy i'm working towards it and maybe i'll have a, a better day and maybe i'll uh, learn some new stuff or i might take a step back whatever it is but as long as you just keep making that effort boy it just makes a huge difference and we'll add certainly add you know, I started doing some local jazz gigs. So there had to be a certain amount of confidence for me to get out there and do that, even though I wasn't anywhere near what I, where I like to have been, but you got to do it. You know, you just got to get out there. And, and, and the jazz thing is always, even though I'm primarily known as a rock player, there's so much I get from just the listening and, and having, you know, enjoyed that style of music and played that style of music so much it very much has influenced and, you know, informed all my note choice, you know, this, just the way that I navigate if through chord changes, you know, just will be a lot different than just a a straight ahead rock player that might be drawing from, 
a particular scale or they're in one key. You know, I'm I'm considering that, but I'm way I'm way more aware of just individual chords as they're happening and how I'm going to treat that with tension and release. You know, but I got so much of that from the study of jazz. So. You mentioned yeah. a little while ago that you thought you kind of found who you were, or got had an idea of who you were as a player yeah. in in yeah. your 50s, not yeah. too long ago. Still there, yeah. Um, and I, I realized that for somebody like yourself, it's it's an ongoing pursuit. Sure. But what was it about that time or that album that made you think this is closer to who I really think I am? I yeah, I think it's it's just kind of a general, gradually evolving thing. But I think part of me saying that I've you know found out who I was was realizing that I needed I I was getting more comfortable with just being me. And not thinking that I had to be all these other people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's easy to be envious of all the great players that are out there, you know, past, present, and future. Um, So sometimes it's hard not to be overwhelmed, at least for me personally. And I I can sense that it's that way for some others, that it's, it's, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the amount of ability that, you know, has, has, come to fruition on the instrument though i feel like we're still scratching the surface right i think that you know there's a very few players that i can look to that that really reach me on a deeply emotional level and i think of jeff beck um i think of uh, pat Matheny, and uh you know i i'm aspiring trying to head to that place where you know by writing some some material that resonates with people or just being able to articulate certain emotions on the guitar um there's a tune on the on the record called When Words Fail. It's just a ballad. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple ballad, but it just kind of alludes to the fact that, you know, the spoken language and written language is a very finite word. You know, well played music can really just touch a different part of the the soul and the heart, right? And uh be it be it on the guitar or, or whatever it might be. Like I say, I was really resonating with Chopin the last couple of years. And of all the composers, he reaches me emotionally very differently and uniquely than anybody else, whatever that is. But I've been studying the heck out of it, you know, because I hear I hear some of the things in, in what I try in, in the way that I write in some things that he he done, you know, in the early romantic period. I'm not saying my writing sounds like Chopin. I'm not trying to say that at all. But but the things that I think I those times when I get to that place, I hear him doing it, too. And so it's. It's wonderful for me to find that to study and just to kind of see what it is about that that moves me the way that, that it does, you know. I'm okay. sorry to ask this because I think it's yeah. a silly question, but okay. as an instrumental songwriter, mm. yeah, how do you come up with ta- song titles? Is it driven by, like, are, are things, does the song title come up start first and then you yeah. write this thing? Or do you write the whole piece and it reminds you of something? How, how, does, how do you title your songs? Yeah. Not a silly question at all. That's that's a great question for any instrumental music. Um, a lot of a lot of tunes for me, well, especially the the ballads tend to be specifically influenced pieces of music like Gone. That was uh you know this piece. And it was a song that came, I wasn't even thinking about it, just the emotion of the day and all these things that were happening in in our lives. Um, Did it come right through you? Like, was that like a one take thing? No. Well, the song, I, I just think I started recognizing that some melodies were happening and then had a cassette player there to document it. Then did a demo of it when I got back after we left. The, I was on tour with Olivia on that day. And... Um, I recorded this little demo of it and didn't think anything of it just other than that. It was just documented how I felt that day. Then one of the band members heard it and said, man, we need to record that. I'm like, I feel weird about recording this song, you know, but once I did and people, you know, understood what the, the inspiration was, it really meant a lot to a lot of people. I had a lot of people would write into the website or whatever. And, 
So, you know, there's, there are those pieces of music that are very specific to a particular emotion. And then there, there are songs like, uh, I admittedly, I'm sitting in the room where a lot of these songs happen, where my band will just be jamming and it's just a groove and it's a feel good kind of thing. And oh, well, what are we going to call this? You know? So that, then at that point you got to think about, well, what does it remind me of? And so there's a, there's a variety of ways, but I think I, I, certainly my favorite compositions are ones that are very specifically emotion, emotion uh, influenced, you know, or event influenced. And it could be something in my life or somebody else's life, but yeah, those are the ones that you know, tend to have a very specific meaning, but because there's no lyrics, it can literally mean anything to anybody. You know, sometimes it'll be influenced if I, if I divulge to people, though, this song was written for, you know, somebody that passed away or whatever it might be. And, and so they might then take the song in that way for some loss in their life. You know, there's a couple of songs I I wrote called that day came and another one called um, on your way, sweet soul that were very much written uh, with loss in mind. And so people, man, they, they, you know, can take that into their heart and, and it gives them the place to feel those emotions to kind of a soundtrack for what they're going through in a way. And there's no bigger honor as a composer or a player to, you know, for people to accept your music in that way and, and have it, and have it mean something, you know, not just to, and it, but not that I wouldn't mind if people just dug my music for just, it was cool jamming, <laughs> but you know, you do, uh, you know, I do have a, a loftier goal. I have that. I have, you know, I would like to have this music have some meaning when it's appropriate, but, but sometimes it's just a groove. Yeah. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. As somebody once said. <laughs> Was there a point when, when, when you, you know, at a young age, you thought this, I want to do an instrumental album. That's the kind of thing that I, I feel like doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, cause I can't imagine how difficult it is to establish yourself in that genre. And, and to actually, yeah. you know, at some point or another, you made a name for yourself. At some point or another, you find yourself right. on stage with Steve Vai and <laughs> Joe Satriani. And so was there a point yeah. where you thought, my God, not that you've made it, because who knows what that right. means. But that right, thought, exactly. That you thought, well, I've come to the place that I'm, I was hoping to get to. Yeah, I I look at that first, that first instrumental record, Your Ecstasy, as kind of feeling that way a little bit, I, I think. You know, it could be because it, you know, even locally here in, in Dallas, it got a lot of, it got a lot of radio play and people were recognizing me as, you know, somebody that they thought was on the level of those guys, though I, I might not have pictured myself at that level at that time. You know, I was definitely headed that direction. And, and I think eventually for, for those guys specifically and Eric Johnson and, and some of my heroes, you know, Mike Stern, that, you know, treat me with a lot of respect and really, you know, love my playing and, and accept me as a peer, you know, it's, uh, I, I, and I think it's because I had older brothers and they were a big reason why I started playing and why, you know, they were the ones I wanted to impress, you know what I mean? And so these players that I'm mentioning are kind of like older brothers in that way too. And I've kind of feel like there was a, a a quote that you know Gene Simmons once famously said: "If anybody says they play music for any other reason but to get laid, is full of shit." You know, well, you know, it that might have been a, a fine you know thing for some, but yeah, that was never in the cards for me. I was I was amazed when there were girls at gigs eventually, but <laughs> no, it was all about just wanting to participate in this thing that we love so much, and really wanting the appreciation and approval of my older brothers, which were kind of father figures in a way heroes in a way but so then for players you know that i that i really respect and look up to and consider heroes for them to have that uh respect and and uh, and you know li lifting me up in their own way that's that's where i feel regardless of any sales or success that stuff you can't buy and the stuff that means the most to me you know um my final question to you is tell me about the relationship between you and your guitar. What is that? <laughs> wow. It's, it's love, man. It's, um, and this, this guitar I'm playing now is the, the prototype that Ivan has made for me in 94. And, uh, but I do have, you know, several others around the house. I try not to play it as much. It's been refretted eight times. Some say nine, but I think it's eight. Uh, my luthier says it's just going to disintegrate one day, which is <laughs> fair enough. So I better have some backup. But it's um, it's an ongoing, evolving relationship in that 
there's a certain part of it that's extremely comfortable. And, and like I say, it's always there for me, but I, I treat it with such respect and with such reverence. I know that there, it, there's so much more to the relationship that hasn't, you know, it, it, the, the seeds have been planted, but it hasn't grown completely yet. So it's, it's still with, with, you know, excitement and frustration and reverence that I still treat it. You know, it's like any relationship, you gotta, you gotta keep working on it. You know, if you just let it go and don't nurture it, it's going to fall apart. Right. So it's, it's something that, yeah, it still frustrates me. It still gives me unconditional love at the same time. You know, it's uh it's, it's got a lot of dynamic, but I think with any great relationship, you have to have all that. Right. Otherwise, I mean, again, like if I thought I was the master of all masters, it wouldn't have the same allure, you know. If I thought I've got the, I've got this completely down, what else is next? You'd be you'd be off to gardening or whatever, and uh, or, or or who knows what. But uh, I'm happy that I still have that same drive, and probably more now than ever to to keep trying to figure some stuff out, and you know, not only to participate in what I what I've enjoyed in the past and admire about others but to you know continue to forge whatever it is that I have to offer keep trying to discover that and and let that reach its potential whatever it might be nicely put Andy it's a real yeah. pleasure meeting you I've yeah, really enjoyed listening to your music and the guitar playing just blows me away <laughs> oh, thank um, you man and thank you so much for spending this time I'm very happy to do so I hope I'll see you in Toronto one of these days once we we're able to get out of the house safely and you know, yeah, that would without, be without without stress, etc. You know, right. until then, I'll be sitting here doing concerts from my house, I guess. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks, Marco. Appreciate you, man. Mm-hmm.